Good morning, church. Good morning. Well, we are going to be continuing on in the book of Habakkuk this morning. So if you want to pull out those Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk, we are going to be in chapter 3 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one in the pew rack in front of you. And in that Bible, we're on page 950. Again, Habakkuk chapter 3, about two-thirds of the way through your Bibles. A small, somewhat obscure and unique Old Testament prophet. Now, if you've been with us this past two weeks, you know, might know we've been on somewhat of a roller coaster of a ride with this gutsy, honest, raw prophet named Habakkuk. He lived about 2,600 years ago on the edge of a national disaster, facing confusion, doubt, trouble, and his faith was put in jeopardy. Because this prophet wasn't just any prophet from any nation. Habakkuk was an Israelite. He's part of God's chosen people, the people who are supposed to inherit the promised land, who would multiply as many as the stars, and who the Lord would use to bless and heal this broken world. But as we've seen, the fulfillment of these promises doesn't seem that likely anymore. It's been hundreds of years since those promises were made to Habakkuk's long-dead ancestors. 300 years ago, this nation that was supposed to bless the world was split into two with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. What happened to the promise? And then in Habakkuk's parents' lives, that, that uh, country in the north, Israel, were overtaken and plundered and were brought into exile by the Assyrian Empire. And all this left is a small southern kingdom of Judah, and where Habakkuk is called as a prophet to remind the people of God's distant promise, which sounds like a faint echo amidst all the chaos he sees. Is there any hope left? When will God's promises come true? Why doesn't he act on the wickedness he sees? Why is there wickedness in this people of blessing? So he comes to the Lord limping with confusion and pain only to hear that the most wicked nation on the planet in just a couple of years is going to come and take this southern kingdom into exile. So, in this small, obscure, ancient, prophetic book in the Old Testament, we find this man of faith crippled by confusion. We get a portrait of this vulnerable servant of God, and as one writer has put it, in this small book, we get a rare look at the private diary of a confused preacher. But as we've entered into this ancient world over the past two weeks, we've found that we have a disturbing amount of similarities with this obscure prophet. As we've read over these past two weeks, these chapters, have you found that to be true? It's striking that 2,600 years later, we face very similar obstacles. The world is still broken. We come limping as victims, but also as culprits of this brokenness. Now, maybe you've had a really hard start to 2018. Things aren't ironing out like you thought they would. Maybe you're still dealing with the pain of 2017, carrying emotional uh, burdens and broken relationships. There's sin that just keeps clinging on. Or maybe we're carrying physical pain and illness. Or we see it in our friends, and things keep getting worse. For others of us, we might feel governed and trapped by anxiety and fear, and we come limping. But so does Habakkuk. But as we've noticed over the past two weeks, Habakkuk, in all of his confusion, all of his doubt, he's showing us another way to face it, 
a way that we normally neglect. There's another way forward. So we use this imagery of a toolbox. When disaster comes, when pain comes, when confusion comes, Habakkuk gives us a toolbox of languages to help us speak and to process and to face the brokenness we live in. Now, for many of us, these tools are tools we're not that familiar with. Because in our culture, even, our, even in our Christian culture, they're not taken out of the toolbox all that often. So in chapter 1, as a reminder, we have a quick show us the language of lament. We saw when you find yourself in pain, authentic faith responds in honesty. Authentic faith laments. It comes to the Lord and says, how long are you going let, to keep letting this happen? Why does it seem like it's getting worse? Lord, help me. This isn't the way it should be. Have you ever wished you could lament and you felt you couldn't? What many of us thought was an indecent or an improper way of relating to God, a sort of social impoliteness, proves to be the path to an organic, pulsating relationship, a lifeline of sorts. But it doesn't stop there. The Lord doesn't leave us in the lurch. In chapter 2, Habakkuk showed us the language of woe. We saw that when all we see in this brokenness and wickedness of the world, faith trusts in the woes of brokenness. It recognizes the vision of ultimate defeat of evil and brokenness. Even when we can only see what's in front of us, the eyes of faith see the Lord's vision to Habakkuk. Sin will be cleansed. Confusion will be embraced. Violence will cease. Death will die. So in chapter 1, we have the language of lament. Chapter 2, the language of woe. And so now today we come to our third and our final installment of Habakkuk. Now, while many of us may have found the first two chapters helpful as we're thinking about processing this, I'm sure there's many of us who just want an answer. How do we move forward? How do we get out of the pain and trouble? That's precisely the question we're asking today. After the honest pain of lament and the brutal vision of woe in chapter 2, how do we move forward? How does faith move forward through pain and trouble? The reason why we just spent a good amount of time recounting what we've learned in the past two weeks is because there's an interconnectedness between these chapters. It's a process. It's a rhythm. It's a cycle. Because far too often in Christian circles, we tend to skip over chapters 1 and 2 and come right here to chapter 3, to the crescendo. But that just makes for a very flimsy, trite answer to pain and doubt and confusion. But nevertheless, today, with chapters 1 and 2 behind us, we turn to chapter 3, as Habakkuk teaches us the language of remembrance. But let me just pray as we open up God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that you reveal yourself in your word. We're thankful that 2,600 years later, this prophet who struggles with pain and down confusion gives us a picture of what it looks like to faithfully process pain and doubt in this broken world we live in. We ask for open eyes and open hearts. Bless the reading of your word. We're asking in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was the 19th of March, 1988. A day of very little hope, but a small group from Leicestershire began to sing amidst the crowd. Nobody knew really what it was or where it came from, but it began to spread. An old African spiritual was transplanted into a setting that the original songwriters would have never imagined. Neither did the small group from Leicestershire realize how big the song would become. A day that I, quote, went down in English rugby folklore. 
Some of you know what I'm talking about? A couple? I see a couple nods. Okay. So let's have a listen to this song together. Hopefully this works. It was the final game of the Five Nations Rugby against Ireland. Down 3-0, England began to come back, and this song was sung, and it was adopted and ingrained into English rugby folklore. Now, to the Scotsmen and English, or Irish among us, please forgive me. I don't mean to insult you and offend you so early on a Sunday morning. But for many of the English rugby supporters, did a smile come to your face as you listened to that? As you heard your people sing, Swing low, sweet chariot. Why is that? Why is that that songs have that power over us? Because there's this weird way that singing and identity and memory are all kind of interwoven together. It's as if when we sing songs like that, we're caught up into something bigger than us, a a history or a tradition or a community. Because for some odd reason, this old African spiritual means something to us. But this is only just one example. Have you ever noticed that the most profound times in your life You sing? Think back to your wedding. Did you have a wedding song or a first dance song? Get that song in your head, and men, hopefully you can remember. Get that song in your head. Whenever you hear that song, do you ever feel transported back to that moment? Or take, for example, another profound moment for us, our death. People often like to plan their funeral services, which basically means what? I want to choose the songs, because it really matters what songs are sung. We're these weird story animals. And singing often is the most natural response when our worlds fail to communicate the beauty we see or to grab hold of the gravity of the situation or harness the confusion and pain we're dealing with. We sing when we come to an end of ourselves, whether it be an inexpressible beauty or pain, because singing is the language of remembrance. Singing is the language of remembrance. And Habakkuk leaves us in chapter 3 with a song of beauty and strength, but also trembling and weakness. So let's dive into this song. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, starting in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shiganot. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years... Make it known in wrath, remember mercy. So chapter 3 starts with a prayer, but it says, according to the Shigenoth. I had a friend call, and I asked, what is the proper Hebrew pronunciation? He said, it's Shigenoth. So let's say it together after me. Shigenoth. Very good. So a Shigenoth is a rare term that comes up only a few times in the Hebrew Scriptures, once in Psalm 7 and a couple other places. But it's a musical term. It's a category of song. If you look at the last words of chapter 3, you'll see that the entire chapter is to the choir master with stringed instruments. Instruments. A shigenoth was a song that was meant to be sung in the morning of waking, propelling you forward into the day. And so after hearing the terror of chapter 1, the doom of chapter 3, we come to this morning praise song in, chap- uh, in chapter 3. It's all one big cycle. Chapter 1, verse 1 starts with an oracle that Habakkuk sees. 
Chapter 2, verse 2 continues that here's a vision from the Lord. And chapter 3, verse 1 begins with a praise song. There's these three sections. As we saw, they correlate to the language of lament, the language of woe, and the language of remembrance. To move forward through the pain and trouble, we need to look back. To move forward, remember. But how do we remember well? By singing with Habakkuk. Now, there are two sections of the song, what I call the verses and the chorus. So first, let's look at the verses. That's going to be verses 3 to 15. Um, I was recently listening to um, Malcolm Gladwell, who's an author and writer of The New Yorker, and he was trying to come to an answer to a very interesting question. The question he's asking is, what makes a good song? What do you think? As you think back on some of your favorites... Is there anything in common between all of them? Maybe it's a rhythm, or maybe it's the, uni- the unique sound the band has. Maybe it's the purity of the singer's voice, or the complexity of the musicianship. What do you think? What makes a good song that's passed down from one generation to the next? Well, what Malcolm Gladwell found out in his research is that what makes certain songs stand out from all the rest is that the songs sing about particulars and specific situations, specific scenes and images and stories. They have flesh and blood on them. They avoid generalizations and cliches. Good songs are particular and specific. There's this narrative element in them. And as we come to Habakkuk's song, we see exactly that. It's the reason why this final chapter stands out as one of the most standout songs in the Old Testament. The verses in Habakkuk's song are calling to mind particular in specific ways, God has cared for and saved his people in the past. So as a Jewish person listening to these verses, which we're about to read in a second, you would have just had all these stories popping into your head, and imagery would be bringing different stories to your mind. And so as we read, we're going to read through this whole chunk together. Keep your mind open. See if there's anything that reminds you of other stories in the Bible. So let's read the whole chunk together, verses 3 to 15, starting in verse 3. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and his earth was full of praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheaths from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, you trampled the sea with your horses. 
the surging of mighty waters. Can anyone pick up any biblical imagery there? There's a lot there, and I haven't even begun to get into all of it, but in verses 3 and 4, we have this imagery of God bringing his people on a route to Mount Sinai, where he's veiled in power and lightning. In verse 4, we have an image of the plagues and the pestilence, which are meant to remind us of the Exodus story, when God saves his people from slavery. In verses 6 to 10, we have the imagery of creation, when God ordered the waters and the mountains. And verse 11 reminds us when the Lord held the sun in place during Joshua's context, conquest, so that the Lord, so that God's people could win the war. And then in verse 13 to 15, we have even more Exodus imagery with words from Genesis 3 that the anointed will crush the head of the wicked. So, as Habakkuk faced this Babylonian invasion, which for him was the very end of his world, he sings the song of remembrance. Remember what God has done. And he uses imagery and words that call to mind specific instances of the Lord working for his people. Because notice, in all these instances, God's people felt as if the world was falling, was going to end. Yes, the Lord showed up at Mount Sinai, but the people were wandering in the desert without food or water. Yes, the Lord showed up in the Exodus story, but the people were held in slavery for years. Yes, the Lord showed up for Joshua, but the people thought they wouldn't have enough time to claim the victory. These aren't nice little coffee cup stories. These stories are stories of salvation amidst the world falling apart. So as Habakkuk feels the world falling apart, he sings this song of remembrance. Now there's some of us here who feel like the world is falling, around, falling down around us. Many of us have been there. We'll all be there in the future. And after lamenting, Habakkuk is teaching us to sing, to remember, but not in a trite, cheap way, but in a deep and profound way. This song is for you. For those of us who are Christians, these are our stories too. These are our forefathers. But we can also add to these songs. As you think back on your own life, are there particular dark and difficult times when you faced crippling pain or confusion or brokenness? And the Lord found you in those places. Take a moment. Remember. Not just in a sticky note way of remembering, but place yourself in those shoes again. Remember where you were, how it felt. Remember the specifics and sing. But let's remember, this isn't necessarily a happy song that all of a sudden it's okay. It's as if, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is a prayer. This is a song calling on God. Lord, as I look back on my life, as I remember what you did back there, I'm asking you, please, can you do it again? Do it again. So it says in verse 2, In the midst of yours, revive it. In the midst of yours, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Do it again. To move forward, look back and sing what the Lord has done with particularity and specificity. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. So to bring this down to earth, very quickly. Many of us love that as a church we sing together. It's wonderful. It warms our hearts, but there's a lot more going on than we think. Some of us come this morning limping and dealing with pain, and it actually comes as a relief that you don't need to come smiling and happy. You only need to open your mouth and let the song do the work for you sometimes. Secondly, this was a song written for all of God's people. 
we often think that singing to the Lord is sort of this um, individual one-way communication between us and God. And it is a way of worshiping individually. But we're also called to sing together. And there are people here today who, who even have trouble opening their mouths to sing the songs we sing. And your voice singing a little bit off-key next to them is ministering to their hearts in a way that nothing else can. So before we consider what, what songs we like personally, remember that singing is an opportunity for us to also sing to each other. So to move forward through the pain and trouble, look back and sing what he has done. We've come a long way from chapter 1 in lamenting. So last we turn to the chorus. The grand crescendo of the book. It should be a happy note. End on a happy note, right? Let's see in verse 16. Let's read beginning of 16. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. We find Habakkuk trembling. His legs about to give out. There's rottenness in his bones. His stomach is churning. This isn't how we expect to find him. Now, some people disagree why exactly he's feeling this way, whether it's just the grandness of God's works, but actually it makes more sense that he's still feeling the weight of the Babylonian invasion. He's still trembling as he sees disaster coming upon his people. So for some of us, that's a relief too. Habakkuk doesn't magically feel better. He's still carrying the burdens even at the end of the book. But he brings us one last step further with the key word of the entire book. It's a very small word, the word yet. Let's read 16 to the end. I hear and my body, my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. We get this beautiful chorus, and right smack dab in the middle, the important turn of phrases is this word, yet, whereas other translations say, even if, or even so. So in verse 16, as the Babylonians are on the brink of invading, he says, yet I will quietly wait for your justice. In all this man-made wickedness, I'll wait. Then in verses 17 and 19, Habakkuk's considering the natural brokenness of the world. He uses the imagery of an unblossoming fig tree, no grapes, no sheep, no cattle. Yet, I will take joy in my God and my strength. Which is baffling. He lived in a grave society. This is his whole life. If there's no sheep in the pens, if there's no crop, no produce, there's no livelihood. For Habakkuk, the future is completely up in the air. But even if, even if it gets that bad, yet... I will take joy in the Lord, and he will be my strength. Now, please hear what Habakkuk is saying. This isn't a trite, cheap, flimsy answer, that everything is just suddenly going to work out. In fact, Habakkuk imagines it getting worse. But he says, even in spite of that, yet he will draw on the Lord for strength and joy. This is a sort of textured, layered response. And this would make an awful movie, wouldn't it? 
Because this isn't the movie theater ending we were expecting. This isn't what we've been promised by culture. For many of us, this isn't what we've been promised by our Christian culture. We've been promised that things are going to get better very soon. But here Habakkuk is teaching us how to face pain and trouble, even when it gets even worse. This isn't photoshopped or airbrushed ending. But this ending is more true to life, isn't it? And isn't it a little bit more beautiful? This is a texture response to pain and confusion and doubt, this multi-layered response. Habakkuk says, I don't feel the joy. I can't muster up the strength. I need you. I will sing and take joy in my God and find strength in my God. Now track with me. There's only two things that really change for Habakkuk, his joy and his strength. At the beginning of his book, in the lament, his joy is found in the circumstance of his people, And his strength is found in his own ability to prophesy and to preach, to bring his people back. But by the end here, I'll take joy in my God, find my strength there. He's saying, I remember who you are, Lord. Please, I'm I'm asking you, be my joy, be my strength. Because right now, I don't have any. In the pain and confusion and doubt, sing the chorus of this song with Habakkuk. Remember who your God is. So as we, and let me just bring this down to earth for a minute. Some of us come this morning trembling, our stomachs turning in the midst of chaos, the confusion, the pain, the what if. Other of us come in relatively high spirits. But this book is trying to teach all of us something. Because the question of pain and doubt and confusion is not a question of if, it's a question of when. We live in a broken world amidst broken people. So, when the cancer comes. Lord, I don't get it. Why would you allow this to happen? Isn't this, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I thought you were supposed to be a life giver. Why aren't you giving life right now? I don't understand. I know you would bring an end to this one day, but why not today? Lord, I know you bring life out of death, but right now I can barely walk to work. My legs and my voice, they tremble with sadness, but even if it gets worse, yet I need you to be my fountain of joy where I can't find it anywhere else my strength when my body begins to fail, when the relationship begins to break. Lord, I haven't done anything wrong. I've been nothing but peaceful and gentle. You seem to not care about my feelings, allowing this to fall apart. I thought you were all about faithfulness, yet I seem to be cursed by people who don't care about me. My stomach is in knots even thinking about the relationship ending because it might get worse. But even so, I need you to be a place of comfort and joy to hold me when I begin to crumble under the weight of my misplaced expectations. When a sudden death occurs, Lord, how could you let this happen? Why would you allow the innocent, the pure, the unborn to die like this? I'm at a loss for words. I don't understand. I'm sitting here shaking with outrage and sadness. Why does it seem like you sit idly? I know you're the great healer, but I don't see any healing. Though I cannot see it, though I find it's hard to believe and trust, Yet I will place my trust in your strength. I will seek joy in you because I can't find it anywhere else. In this small little word, yet, we get a glimpse at true faithful maturity in the midst of pain and confusion. Habakkuk is not a know-it-all Christian. He's a fellow brother limping through this world, seeking to find his joy in the Lord and find his strength in his presence. So, when the pain and confusion comes, 
sing the chorus of this song with Habakkuk. Remember who your God is. Been taught a lot from this little obscure prophet, haven't we? The language of lament, honestly coming to the Lord and waiting on him. We've learned the language of woe, trusting in a vision when all we can see is brokenness. And now the language of remembrance. To move forward, we need to remember back to who our God is and what he does, even if it gets worse. And the Lord gives us simple ways of bolstering our faith in times of trouble. And today we saw <clears throat> that it means singing together. By opening our weak mouths and singing frail songs, we can find joy and strength in the midst of pain. Singing songs like this. It's a means by which the Lord showers his grace and mercy upon us. But the Lord has also instituted another way of remembering him and showering us with his grace when our faith feels weak. Today, we get the privilege of celebrating communion, which for us is the ultimate symbol of remembrance. Communion is a time when we remember what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. That amidst the broken world, The Son of God was sent into the world to take on our pain, our wickedness, our brokenness, to bear it to the cross where he would put it to death. Through his broken body, our brokenness is healed. And as we eat this normal bread and drink this normal grape juice, because we believe, we trust, that amid the trouble and confusion and the chaos, this is where we find our joy and our strength. So whether you feel weak or strong, if your heart's song is to find joy and strength in Jesus, this meal is for you. If you've never had communion before, if you come this morning limping by your own brokenness, but trusting in Jesus for life and joy, this is for you. If you're not there, um, will you just ask that as the elements are distributed, you just let the cup and the pass, um, plate pass by you. There's absolutely no pressure whatsoever, and we would love if you would ponder with us what it means that God himself takes upon our brokenness. Now, for those, uh, <clears throat> those of us who do take, um, would you just please hold the bread and the cup, and then I'll lead us. We all receive the elements. Let's take a time to remember. So, stewards, would you come and help? And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, afterwards, he took the cup after the eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you from many different places this morning, um, but we live amidst this broken world. We find it difficult to come to terms with how we're to live faithfully. Um, We find ourselves in pain and confusion oftentimes, and in those moments we ask for your grace. We ask in those moments... We have the strength to say, even if, yet I will take joy in my God and find strength in you. Father, we thank you that in the person of Jesus, you have begun to recreate this world, that this is where we find our joy and our strength. Father, teach us.
to be dependent on you. Rest us in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.